And I have to tell you, I'm really, really excited about this series because I just, I love the theme. And uh, I want to tell you the story of maybe my favorite illusion in American history. Happened on Halloween night of 1938, which is a little while before I discovered America. Um, But an interesting story because it involves a, a very, very famous radio drama. There was this guy who was sort of an up-and-coming talent in the, in the radio scene in, in New York, Orson Welles. Um, and at the time, he was maybe not all that well-known, but, but people knew the characters he played. He played a lot of really, really important radio characters, but he was not credited in a lot of those shows. But he had this one hour... Uh, of time on the air where he was credited. It was Orson Welles' hour, and it was a dramatic uh, presentation hour. It was, it was an hour of uh, radio that was kind of the dark dramas that were sometimes popular at that time. Um, but there was a problem for Orson, and that was that his ratings were great on the shows where he didn't get any credit, but on this show where it was his show, the ratings weren't all that good. And so he was really struggling with that, trying to figure out how to punch through the competition. I mean, it was a time when America was sort of winding up into World War II, and people had enough drama in their lives, and so they wanted to listen to things that were more lighthearted. And his drama hour was up against these comedy shows, and people wanted to listen to something lighthearted. He was really struggling to, to try to get on top of the ratings. So on Halloween night, he thought of all times, this would be his opportunity to really do something that, that was uh, appropriate to what people wanted in that evening and he could, maybe could really uh, you know, get a leg up on the competition. So here's what he did. He decided we're going to do something that's sci-fi because we, we don't want to do something that's too realistic because again, that's going to pile on to what people's stuff in their life already is. We're going to do something outlandish, something out there. We're going to do a sci-fi drama and he had read an old book you know, we're talking about 1938, but he had read a book from 1898 uh, that was sort of like the quintessential uh, sci-fi Mars Invades Earth book. It was by H.G. Uh, Wells, and it was called War of the Worlds. And the whole book was about Martians invading Earth and blasting property away, blasting people away with their heat rays. And, uh, you know, Orson Welles thought, this is perfect. This is a great drama. It's a classic. We're going to do it, and this is going to be successful. So he gives it to his writers, and he says, turn this book into a radio drama. And they do. A couple nights before Halloween, they all get together for the table read, all the actors that are going to be part of this radio drama, and they read through it. And Orson Welles, at the end, is absolutely despondent. He's got his head in his hands, and he said, this is a disaster. This is just boring. It's flat. It's another, you know, flat radio play that we're going to put on. Nobody's going to care. It just doesn't have any punch. It doesn't have any oomph. And he says, we got to do something. Somehow, in the two days that we've got, we got to do something to make it better. And he thought, maybe what would really give this a leading edge is instead of treating it like a drama, like all the other dramas that everybody's doing, that we're doing, what if we told this like a news story? And what if we told it like it was actually happening? We tell it in the present tense. We have our actors act like news personalities. We have actors act like people that it's happening to right then, but we present it in sort of like a a breaking news kind of format. And people were very familiar with this format at the time. This was how people got their news. Again, 1938, people would get their news about what was happening in Europe and what was happening on the world scene because in the middle of whatever program they were listening to, there would be this bulletin that would break through and say, this is what's happening, right? So people were used to this. And Orson Welles thought that would give it the right tone of drama to really get people engaged with the story. He said, no, we don't need to worry about you know, people you know, getting crazy about this because first of all, it's about Martians. Second of all, we're gonna tell them at the beginning of the program, this is just a drama, right? And they did. They did the program and they said at the beginning, this is just a radio drama. 
and they started playing some, you know, really hokey dance music, and they break in with this breaking bulletin. Martians have landed in New Jersey. In this tiny little city in New Jersey, Martians have landed, and they are mounting walking machines, because apparently Martians don't have legs to walk. They're mounting these walking machines, and they're blasting people away with their heat rays. And the newscasters giving these just terrifying descriptions of these beasts and how that they're, you know, taking out the National Guard and this huge thing that's happening, and it's just... It's explosive all over the place, and there's no way to contain it. Well, some people did hear the announcement at the very beginning of the hour that this was just a radio drama, but they had a phenomenon back then. You know, now we talk about channel surfing, right? So you're in the middle of an, of an hour, and you're just kind of surfing channels. Back then, they had something called dial twisting, right? So somebody would start listening to a program, they would get bored with it, and they would twist the dial and turn to another program. So some people started listening to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and they were listening to the nice little comedy routine going on with the ventriloquist, which I never understood on radio, but whatever. Um, <laughs> And they're listening to this, and they get bored with it, and they turn the dial, and guess what they hear? A breaking news bulletin that, Mar folks, Martians. Martians have landed in New Jersey and are taking over, right? So some people listened to this and thought, this is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. Some other people listened to this and thought, this is brilliant radio drama. But there were some people who listened to the program who said, we're all going to die. <laughs> and they freaked out. Right? Some people in New Jersey especially, New Jersey was really, uh, you know, there were a lot of people really freaking out there because this was supposedly in their backyard. Some people in New Jersey went into their homes and got the things that were most valuable to them, just like you would if the fire alarm went off in your home and you really thought there was a fire. They would get their, their photo books, anything that was, you know, family treasures, whatever, put them in their car and drove as fast as they could to get as far away from New Jersey as they could. Folks, they actually clogged the highways. Right? You've seen the footage of people trying to get away from the hurricanes in Florida. They're, you know, the, the highways are completely jammed. This happened in New Jersey, but it wasn't people trying to get away from a hurricane. It was people trying to get away from the Martians. Right? It was crazy. I mean, you want to talk about irrational things that people did. A few people heard the part of the radio program where they said that the Martians were, were killing people with poison gas. So they called their police department and they begged for gas masks so that they would not die via gassy Martian. Right? Um, some people called up and asked for the electric company to turn the lights off to their neighborhood so that the Martians would kill everybody in the other lit up neighborhoods and not see them, right? They did not want the Martians to come for them because of, they could be, they're trying to treat it like an air raid. So that's kind of irrational if you think about it. Even in 1938, now I, I grant you, we've had a lot of science, science has made a lot of strides in, in the decades since, but, but let's face it, even in 1938, the idea of Martians coming to Earth and taking people out, it's not very plausible scientifically. It's kind of an irrational thing to do to get in your car and drive away expecting your house to be you know, gone when you return the next day, just scorched Earth underneath there. It would be, it's irrational um, to, to beg for gas masks or to ask the electric company to turn the lights out in your neighborhood. But that's the thing about a really good illusion. A really good illusion can make us do irrational, wacky, counterproductive, kind of crazy things, if you think about it. If an illusion's good enough, we can do some really crazy, crazy stuff. 
And that's what Orson Welles had to face the next day, right? Now, here's the deal. I'm not exactly sure how shocked Orson Welles was because he was pretty confident in his own talents and abilities. So I think maybe the next day when he realized how much panic he'd created, he just patted himself on the back for being such a good actor. But when he was interviewed by news people, he had to definitely act like he was really despondent over all the you know, terrible uh, anxiety people felt. And he definitely communicated it that way. But one of the things that I noticed in one of his interviews, when he's being asked, did you know this was going to cause this kind of panic, um, is he said this, in, in one of the interviews that I read, he said, it was just a piece of fiction. I, I, he said, I don't understand how it could be so powerful. It, it was just a piece of fiction, and there's tons of fiction out there. And he's right. We should notice that there's a ton of fiction that doesn't cause people to do crazy stuff, but there's some fiction that does cause people to do crazy stuff. What's the difference? What made the War of the Worlds different than all the other radio dramas that were being put on the radio at the time? It was not just fiction. It was a special kind of fiction. It was believable fiction. That's what made it interesting. Because... A lot of the dramas that were going on, people absolutely knew they were a drama or there was something so outlandish about it that they understood that it was a drama. But for some people, when they tuned into War of the Worlds, because of the way it was presented, it was believable. That's the nature of an illusion. If, if we wanted to just get ourselves a, a working definition of what is an illusion, we could just say that an illusion is a believable lie. It's a believable piece of fiction. And an illusionist, then, is a person who has the talent, the skill, the ability to make a lie believable. See, that's what was so powerful about Orson Welles. That's what catapulted this guy from being a you know, pretty successful radio personality, but not, not necessarily um, somebody that was a household name. All of a sudden, he was on the international stage and everybody knew who Orson Welles was because he had proven that more than most, he was a very talented illusionist. He was, a, he was very talented at making a lie Believable. And I think we understand that illusionists have power. If somebody can get you to believe something that isn't true, they can get you to do some things that don't make sense. Right? I belong to a school of thought that says, yes, it is true that people do irrational things. Yes, it is true that people do things that don't make sense. People do counterproductive things. People do self-harmful things. All that's true. But I belong to a school of thought that says, if you understand what a person was believing at the time, how they behaved will make sense. I believe that a person's behavior always makes sense if you understand what they believed at the time that they behaved that way. So this is why illusionists have so much power. If we behave based on what we believe, if somebody can get us to believe a lie, they can change our behavior. They can change what we do. You think about somebody who was going home to have a nice dinner in their home in New Jersey, hang out with the family, have a, you know, have a wonderful little family evening. All of a sudden, because of this illusion, they are loading up their car and driving away from their home expecting never to see it again. If you can change what people believe, you can change what they're gonna do. That's why illusionists have power. And I think that's why we have kind of a love-hate relationship with illusion. Because think about it, isn't it true? Sometimes we'll pay for the illusion and sometimes we'll pay not to face an illusion. Sometimes we want to be fooled, sometimes we don't want to be fooled. 
I looked up the price for tickets online before I did this talk. If you want to go see David Copperfield in Vegas this uh, week, it's going to cost you between 100 and 200 bucks for, for tickets. So some of us in this room would pay between 100 and 200 dollars to be fooled. But some of the same ones of us will pay somewhere between 100 and 200 dollars a year for a subscription to something like Consumer Reports so that when we go buy that refrigerator, we don't get fooled. Sometimes we want to be fooled, sometimes we don't want to be fooled. Well, I spent some time thinking about that this week. What makes the difference? What's the hinge that that swings on? And it dawned on me, we, we, we're okay with illusion so long as we can kind of control it and so long as nobody gets hurt. And that's the big one. We just, it, it, it's, 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 it's okay if illusion is for entertainment value and nobody gets hurt, but the moment that somebody starts getting hurt by illusion, we have a problem. This is what happened with Orson Welles, right? The mail floods in after the War of the Worlds to the, to the station. Some of the people that write letters say, this is the most brilliant piece of radio drama that's ever been on the airwaves. And some of the people that write in say, Orson Welles should be taken off of the radio and never be on another program ever again because of his irresponsibility. What's the difference between people who thought it was brilliant and people who thought he should never be on the radio again? Some people thought that it didn't hurt anybody and some people thought that it did hurt people. We want to go to illusionist show or, or, or to experience illusion for the same reason that we want to ride a roller coaster because we trust that it's going to be all right, right? If you're going to get dropped 100 foot straight down on a roller coaster, you trust that it's going to be all right so you kind of get to control the experience and you sort of get to face your fear of being dropped 100 feet. That's the same reason that people go see a magician is because we can kind of control it. We know we have control over it. We know that nobody's going to get hurt, so we can kind of get next to something that we're afraid of because we know that sometimes when people get fooled, they get hurt. So we, we, we want that experience where we know nobody's going to get hurt because then we can face our fear. But the rest of the time, we're kind of afraid of this a little bit. We have a special group of names for people that are illusionists that hurt people. We call them cheats and scammers and frauds. Swindlers, right? Certainly in my, in my lifetime, one of the greatest uh, scammers of all time is Bernie Madoff. Here's a guy who looked really good on the outside. He was running a fund that looked like it was doing all right. They were getting nice, solid returns while the rest of the market was doing this number. And they were taking in money in, in immense amounts and saying that they were investing and, and they were keeping that Ponzi scheme alive by giving returns to some investors, but they knew eventually that house of cards would fall. And when it did, Bernie Madoff had to admit that he had lost billions upon billions upon billions of dollars of investors' money. Unlike Orson Welles, where some people think he did really good and some people think he did really bad, pretty much all of us are in the same place when it comes to Bernie Madoff. None of us are real high on his person. We, we don't like Bernie Madoff very much because we don't want that kind of person in our life. We don't want somebody who tricks people to take advantage of them. That's a swindler, and we don't, we don't need that in our life. A swindler has kind of one trick, one approach. This is how, this, this is how they do things. Their goal is to get you to believe something that is not true in order to get you to do something that is not smart. If you think about it, think about the mistakes that you've made in your life. You've made mistakes, I've made mistakes, things that we wish we could go back and undo. If you were to replay in your mind the things that you wish you could go back and undo, think about the fact that it started, almost always it started with believing something that was not true. And this is what a swindler does. 
But Bernie Madoff is not the greatest swindler of all time, right? Right now, for a lot of people, he holds, that, he holds that position. But the Bible tells us there's a bigger swindler than that. There's a swindler that wants to do more than take your 401k or take your financial future away from you. The Bible says that Satan wants to take every part of your future away that's meaningful and good and authentic and genuine and something that God has placed in your life. And I want to take a quick time out here for just a second and say, if you're in this room and you're new to New Spring or you, and you say, you know what, Jonathan, I'm kind of new to this God thing and, and I'm just exploring right now and I'm trying to learn more about this and I don't, think I, can, I don't think I can really come along with you on this idea that there's a real Satan and, and all that kind of thing, let me tell you, please don't walk out of here and think, I'm not going to come back to the rest of this series because it's about something I don't believe in. Here's the thing, I promise you, there's going to be practical information in this series for you no matter what level of faith that you're at. But I do need, in the interest of full disclosure, in the interest of academic honesty, I have to tell you that the Bible tells us that there is a real person named Satan that is out to get every person, but especially believers in Jesus Christ. He's, he, the Bible says he's, he's walking around like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what the Bible is talking about in the devouring, that is the swindle. Satan is looking for whomever he can, he can find who is vulnerable to believe something that is not true so that he can get them to do something that is not smart. I say that because sometimes we have an image of Satan that's not helpful. We've got this cartoon image of Satan as somebody who likes to stand on people's shoulders and argue with angels, and he stands there in red PJs, has, has a horns and a pitchfork, you know? And uh, that's not at all the image of Satan we should be carrying. If you want a good image of Satan, you should think of somebody who is the, the, the most oily, slick scam artist that you've ever met, because that's exactly what he does. He's a scam artist, he's a swindler. There was, in, in the 90s, there was a novel that was written by a popular author about Satan and his minions and so forth. And, and, and uh, I remembered people being very scared at that point about how Satan uh, uh, dealt with people. They, I remember talking to somebody who said they were, they were afraid to go into their basement because they were afraid of Satan's minions being in their basement. They were afraid to walk around a bush because maybe a demon was hiding behind the bush. You know what? I, I think Satan laughs at that kind of thing because that is not at all how he's trying to mess with people. Satan is trying, this is how Satan messes with people, right? He messes with people by barraging them with believable lies until he figures out what kind of bait they will take. That's what he does. Satan is way more powerful when he gets you to do something bad to yourself because he got you to believe something that isn't true. That's how he operates. I want to show you what the Bible says about this. In, in John chapter 8, the Bible te- God tells us something about who Satan is. He says, uh, when he, he means Satan, lies. And by the way, this word lie in the Greek means to lie and to cheat simultaneously. So that's the swindle as far as I'm concerned. If somebody lies and cheats you at the same time, that's a swindle. When he swindles somebody, it is consistent with his character. Why? Because he is a swindler, and get this, he's the father of the swindle. He figured it out. You want to figure out who is at the head of every Ponzi scheme, who is at the head of every scam that takes advantage of somebody? The fountainhead of that deal is Satan. He figured this thing out. He knows how to offer people counterfeit, and that's what he does, and he does it very well. But it's interesting I started off by saying that Satan has power over us because he's an illusionist. I want to show you how this started from from day one. We can go all the way back to Genesis and we can see this. This is Satan exercising power over our first parents, over Adam and Eve. Now, you remember the story. God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect environment. 
And he, set, he, he sets up the relationship. Now, here's the thing. Every good relationship involves uh, liberty and boundaries. Parents in this room, you know that. It, it, every good relationship involves liberty and boundaries. If you take part of that away, you don't have a good relationship. So God sets up the relationship and lets them know, here's the freedom and, and here's where the lines are drawn. Uh, Lord God put the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch it, but he told him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, by the way, this word die is an interesting word because Adam and Eve are the first human beings. They haven't watched somebody pass away in the sense that we would think of. Uh, one of my favorite Bible scholars says, this Hebrew word is really the word for destroy. So really what, what God told them is, if you eat from the fruit of this tree, it will destroy you. It'll destroy your future. Well, that's a pretty powerful warning. And I submit to you that there's no reason in Scripture to believe anything else other than Adam and Eve intended to follow the rules. Intended to follow the rules. And one of the reasons I believe that is because later on when Satan comes to, dressed up as a serpent to talk to Eve about this uh, fruit issue, she starts off by explaining what the rules were. So Satan comes up to, to Eve as a serpent and, and it says, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, that was just ridiculous. Obviously, God didn't say that, but this is what a magician calls patter. This is distraction. He's just trying to get her off balance. And she says, no, we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Uh, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now look at Satan's response. You won't be destroyed. This isn't going to destroy your future. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, if you were going to tell this story, if you know this part of the Bible and you were asked to tell a story, maybe you were going to teach it to a group of Sunday school children, you might tell it as I would have normally. Satan lied to the woman and then the woman ate the fruit. But I would have missed something. There was something that happened in the middle of that. Look at this. Satan lies. He says, this is what's, it's not going to be like God said. You're not going to be destroyed. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, you're going to be like God. You're going to have a, a higher plane of knowledge. And then look at the very next thing the Bible says. The Bible says the woman was what? Convinced. He got her to believe something that was not true so that now she will do something that is not smart. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. There's always a kernel of truth in the swindle, right? But that kernel always leads to a really, really bad future. So it was true, their eyes were open, but now they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, I'm not going to get into this a whole lot because it's not the theme of this message, but you should know that the Bible says it didn't, it didn't just destroy Adam and Eve's futures. It didn't just destroy Adam and Eve's lives. It, it, destroy, it, it destroyed part of your life and part of my life, and it affected all of mankind because the Bible said once Adam and Eve opened the door to the dark side, the dark side crept into all of our lives. And that influence of the swindle has been something that every single one of us has had to deal with ever since then. Here's what I want you to focus on right now. I believe that Eve intended to do the right thing. That was her intention. But one encounter with the master illusionist and she does a 180. She does something else, something counterproductive. That's helpful for me to understand because when I work with, with couples, I've seen this happen a lot. I've seen people who intended to do really well in their marriage, do really well in their relationship, and then all of a sudden they do something that makes absolutely no sense. It's almost like their intentions have completely turned around. It's hard to figure out what caused that. 
I've performed a lot of weddings, some right here on this stage, and there's a bride and a groom, and they're professing their love for one another, and they're, they're making these huge vows that they're going to love and cherish one another, and sicknesses and health, and poverty and wealth, and the bad that may darken their days, and the good, can you tell I've done this a few times, light, that may lighten their ways, and to be true to each other in all things until death alone shall part them. Those are some big promises. I'm just happy enough to believe that they fully intend to keep them all. As a matter of fact, I think if I were to take a giant red button and put it right here on the stage. Now, it wouldn't go with most of the wedding colors, but if I were to put a giant red button right here on the stage and say, before I pronounce you husband and wife, you have to hit this red button, but here's what's gonna happen. When you hit that red button, it is going to lock in all of your vows and you won't have any choice in the matter. You will have to do everything that you've just vowed to do. You'll have to love and cherish them in sicknesses and health and poverty and wealth till death do you part. It'll be locked in once you hit that button. I'm just sappy and crazy enough to believe that the couples that I marry would hit the button because I believe that's what their intention is to do anyway. And yet we know the story. We know that nearly everybody at some point is gonna go off script from something that they promised on their wedding day. Nearly everybody's gonna fail to love at some point. Nearly everybody's gonna fail to cherish at some point. Sometimes they're gonna do do that in ways that are very destructive. And you're gonna see that intention that started out so well flip and go completely in the opposite direction. Now why would that happen? It's a good question. Well, from this story, we can kind of surmise it comes from falling, falling victim to an illusion. We begin to believe something that is not true so that then we do something that isn't smart. Now, this is, you know, kind of the, the, the difficult part of the talk where we talk about the fact that Satan is an illusionist. He's a master illusionist, way better than Orson Welles, way better than Bernie Madoff. He's talented at making a lie believable. All of that's true. But this is where we turn a corner and we go to a really good place because I want you to know that there is a way to take the power away from an illusionist. There's a way that you can suck the power away from an illusionist so that it does not impact your life for the negative. Want to see what it is? Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Here, here the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and they've got this sort of a difficult situation that they've got to deal with, and he's trying to tell them about how to handle it in a way that honors God and does things the right way, and he's going to explain why they should handle it in the right way. Check this out. He says, you need to handle it this way so that Satan will not outsmart us, and the word outsmart here is yet again a word for cheat. So we don't want Satan to swindle us, and here's how we're going to keep him from swindling us. We are familiar with his evil schemes. We know how he operates. We know what to expect from him. We know about the lie. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that the way to take the power away from an illusionist is to figure out how to anticipate the lie. If you know about the man behind the curtain, it takes the power away, right? It's that moment in The Wizard of Oz, which supposedly Kansans all love The Wizard of Oz. I can't figure that out because the movie wasn't shot in Kansas. Uh, you know, but there's that moment where Toto, who's the smartest actor in the whole thing, goes and, and moves the curtain over, right? He figures it out. Nobody else figures out. There's a man behind the curtain, the big gaseous ball of wizard that's floating over there. You know, all the rest of the actors are over there, you know, Wizard of Oz. Toto knows the score. Toto goes over and opens up this curtain and all of a sudden you see this little diminutive character who's turning knobs and dials, you know, and speaking into the microphone, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And we all laugh. We laugh because we understand that once you know that the man's behind the curtain, everything else is just for show. It was a believable lie until you know about the man behind the curtain. 
See, that's the thing. Why, why did God give us his word? Why does God give us instructions for living? Why does God tell us to watch out for Satan? Because he wants us to anticipate the lie. Because it takes away the power of the illusion. I love this verse. The Bible says in John chapter eight, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. The truth is what sucks the power out of the illusion, which is why it's so important that, the, that Jesus told us in one of the most profound verses in all of scripture, he said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Why do we talk about it being so important to have a relationship with God? If you have a relationship with Jesus, you have a relationship with the truth, it makes it so much easier to spot the lie when it shows up. And that's how the power gets taken out of the illusion. Now, in the, in the few moments that we have left, I want to talk to you about a specific illusion. Now, now, by the way, let me just tell you, this is what the series is about. If you want to know why you should be here for every week of illusions, it's because what we're going to do is we're going to break apart the lies that Satan tells. We're going to tell you these are the, the main ones. These are the lies that Satan puts in front of you on a regular basis so that you will understand when you see it, this is the man behind the curtain, I know what it is, and it will suck the power out of the illusion. That's the whole purpose of this, of this series. But in the, in the moments that I have left, I want to tell you about kind of a fundamental lie, kind of a, kind of a base lie that, under, that underlies all the rest of them that Satan tells. This, this one is kind of a... I looked in lots of stories this week in the Bible of Satan trying to take advantage of people and trying to convince them of a, of a lie. And this always seems to be part of the deal, right? So when we started, I said that Satan is an illusionist, but he's a specific kind of illusionist. He's a swindler. Now I'm going to tell you that Satan is a specific kind of swindler, and that is he's a drug dealer. Satan, one, one of Satan's biggest tricks that he uses is he will try to offer you something that is a temporary high, something of very temporary value to get you to give him something that is a permanent value. That's the way drug dealers work. They want something of permanent value. They want cash. And for that, they hand over something that provides a, a momentary high, just a temporary fix. And that's how Satan operates. Satan wants to give away fake value in exchange for real value. Let me show you where the Bible talks about this. This is in 1 John. The Bible says, The world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. But these things are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away. It's a temporary high. It's not going to be here forever. It's just a temporary fix along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. That's a permanent thing. Satan has three drugs in his bag that he loves to sell. These are his go-to. Satan sells things that look good, things that feel good, and things that feed our sense of entitlement. And the old King James says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Right? Now, not everything that looks good is bad. Not everything that feels good is bad. But if you have to make a bad trade to get something that looks good, if you have to make a bad trade to get something that feels good, then it is a bad thing. It's an illusion. It's a temporary high. There's a phrase that people use in my office sometimes with me. Actually, I hear it a lot. And it goes like this. I know, fill in the blank, but fill in the blank. Now, this sentence is great for overriding your better judgment. Whenever you have to override your better judgment, this is the sentence we use. I know that it's this way, but fill in the blank. Had a guy come into my office in the last couple years, and he said, I know that this pornography habit could blow up my family, and I know it doesn't please God, and I felt like, you know, this is some pretty, this is some, he's starting off pretty good, right? He says, but I'm a guy. 
And I said, I noticed that when you walked in. What's the rest of your sentence? You know? Well, you know, I'm, I'm visually oriented, like all guys are, and it looks good. So it's just, you know, it's a thing. Guys do this. I, I, you know, I know it's not right, but it looks good. You know what? That's not a good enough excuse. It's a temporary high. This, he's basically saying, I'm doing this because I'm a guy. Eh, not true. He's doing it because he's come to believe something that is not true, so now he's doing something that is not smart. He may have to give up his family for that. You think about the risk involved. Is it worth it? No. See, the, the, the lie is, you deserve this, it looks good, go for it. The truth is, it's a temporary high, it's not worth it, I don't need that in my life. I had somebody tell me, and again, this has just been within the past uh, couple years, somebody in my office is working with a couple, and one of them said to me, you know what, I know that anger is a destructive thing. And I know that my anger can get out of control. And I know that my anger can be very difficult for my family to deal with. But I'm the kind of person that just has to vent. I, I, I need to vent. That's part of my personality. And when I vent, I get less angry and I feel better. And I just, it's something that um, people around me just have to recognize. I'm also calling a flag on the play on that one. Because she's not saying I have to vent. She's saying it feels good to vent. Right? And I'm also calling a flag on the play that it makes that person less angry or that it makes them feel better because the science says no to both of those. We all know this. When we vent, we are rehearsing our anger so it just makes us feel more angry and in the end, we don't feel better. It's a temporary high. We're trading something permanent for something that's of very temporary value. Or the last one, which I think Satan's really having a heyday with, is anything that feeds our sense of entitlement. We're one of the most entitled generations of people that's ever lived. Social media isn't helping us with that at all. Because now we don't, we, don't, we don't only feel like we deserve to have whatever, you know, we want. We also feel now like we deserve to have everybody read about everything that we want to say. We want to have people see all that we're having for dinner. Look at my pie. Everybody ought to see this. This ought to go viral. You know? I, I saw a post from, from uh, uh, somebody that I knew on my Facebook feed. This has been some, some years ago. But this was a, a political rant that this person wrote. And I, I didn't even have time to read it. I was scrolling, scrolling through because I was just trying to get to the next thing in my feed. And there's this long political rant. And at the bottom of it, it says, um, it, it says this post ought to go viral, which tells you this person really is, hey, my, you know, all these misspellings that I just wrote and nonsensical phrases really ought to go viral. And then at the end, it says, you should like and share this, get this, if you love God and the American flag. This is where, I mean, this is crazy. This is where we've gotten. It's like, if I have something important to say, it ought to go viral. Well, here's the deal. Even if it did, let's say it did. Let's say that post went viral. It would be a temporary high because I promise you something else will go viral tomorrow. Satan loves to play up to somebody by giving them an overinflated sense of self-importance. And as a culture, we've got that disease but it's a temporary high. By the way, if you want to see how closely what we've talked about, those three drugs, it looks good, it feels good, I deserve this, which by the way, that is the banner cry of entitlement. I deserve this. I know it's not good, but I've paid my dues. I deserve this. If you want to see how well these three things line up with what we were talking about in Genesis, just check out how she was convinced. The Bible says the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. It looks good. And its fruit looked delicious. It's going to taste good. It's going to feel good. And then she wanted the wisdom it would give her. I deserve this. Now, that's, that's half of the swindle. 
half of getting somebody to make a bad trade is overvaluing what you're offering them, right? Um, but there's another half of this, and I learned this when I was working in the car industry. I, I never worked on the, on the sales side of the car business. I always was on the service side, on the, on the mechanic side of things. Uh, but I did work at some dealerships, so I learned some of how the game was played when it came to car sales. And please, if you're in car sales, don't be offended at this. I'm certain, I certainly understand that there are plenty of people with tons of integrity in the car business, but there are also some people with less integrity. Um, and I worked with some of those individuals. And I remembered I was, I was changing out a trim piece on one of our new cars. So I was out on that side of the lot and I was listening, I was overhearing, I, you know, I, I try not to eavesdrop, but that's my spiritual gift. And I was overhearing <laughs> this, uh, the salesman talking to this, this guy who's looking at buying this car. And he's walking around the trade doing the trade eval. And as he walks around, he says, oh, look at this scratch on this rear bumper. Now that one, we, we may have to have it repainted. That could cost, you know, may, we may need to take, you know, three, $400 off our trade offer so that we're, we're ready to handle that. And the buyer says this, he's like, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I just noticed that there's a scratch on the rear bumper of the new car. And he said, that'll buff out. It's one of the great things about this car. It has, it has five coats of paint and three coats of clear coat. So when there's a scratch like that, we can just buff it right out. And you know what? This is how the game is played. You build up the quality and the value in what you're, in, in what you're trying to sell, and you devalue what's trying to be traded. So Satan not only told her, this is really good. Look, it looks good. It feels good. You deserve this. But he also devalued what she was going to have to give up. Look at this. He says, you're not going to be destroyed. He said, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Satan understood that she was not foolish enough to think that she was going to eat this fruit and still have a close relationship with God. That it wasn't going to mess up that relationship at all. He knew that he couldn't convince her of that. So you know what he did? He tried to downplay the importance of the relationship with God. You don't need that. He's trying to keep you under his thumb anyway. I read the story um, I guess it's been about a year ago now, a, a person that I, I had a lot of respect for in the, in the Christian world, a Christian leader, um, suddenly sort of shocked everybody by divorcing his wife and taking off with another lady. And he was trying to explain to the press what had happened so that it wouldn't look so bad. And he did one of those I know but sentences. He said, I know it doesn't look the greatest, but my marriage had basically been over for five years before we ever got divorced anyway. You know what that is? Elevating what I'm getting and devaluing the trade. What I had to give up, well, it wasn't that great anyway. That's how the deal is done. That's how it's done. But the Bible says that we will know the truth. If we follow God and if we're in a relationship with God, the Bible says that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. I had an email in my inbox. It's been about a week ago now. It was from a fellow named Kirk. And Kirk said this to me. He said, Dear Mr. Hoover, I have a very important investment opportunity to speak with you about at your earliest convenience. Please contact me immediately. Signed, Kirk. Now, I know you're going to find this absolutely crazy, but I did not write Kirk immediately back to ask about this incredible investment opportunity that he was contacting me about. It actually might have been fun if I had. Um, but I know, as you do, that this is the classic prelude to what? A scam. I know that that's what it is. As a matter of fact, I was a little surprised that it didn't go to my scam filter. You know, it's a spam filter. I call it a scam filter. Didn't go to my scam filter when it should have. But you know what? It happens. Sometimes the filter doesn't catch it. So you know what I did? 
Instead of going, this made it through, so I should respond to this. I took the little button, I clicked the little checkbox that said scam filter and sent it away to that, and I'm never going to think about it ever again. You know why? Because I don't need that in my life. I can look at that. When somebody writes me about an amazing investment opportunity with an email address like wearescammers.com, I look at that and I go, I don't need this in my life. I don't need to have this kind of communication. It may sound good at first. There might be some sort of temporary high this person is selling, but there's a stinger in the tail. I don't need that in my life. See, part of living the Christian life is refining our scam filter. Being prepared to recognize there's going to be some stuff that shows up in our inbox that is not in our best interest. And it's going to be believable lies because that's how Satan works. He barrages us with believable lies to wait and see what we're going to take the bait. And when he sends the bait our way, we need to be prepared to go, oops, scam filter. I don't need to ever think about that again because I don't need that in my life. I'll close with this. I read a story a couple days ago of a couple of Minnesota teens. Well, I guess it was a group of teens in Minnesota who decided to go shoplifting, right? Terrible thing to do. Um, and, but they were kind of weird shoplifters, strange shoplifters, because shoplifters usually go for things that are easy to conceal, easy to take. I worked at Best Buy as a teenager. I know that usually the things that would get stolen from our store were little items, things that people could easily take and stuff in a pocket or, or conceal easily and get out of the store with. But these teens, no, that wasn't what they were going for. I think they were going for the bragging rights. They decided to steal a giant sheet cake from a grocery store. Now, how do you conceal a giant sheet cake? I mean, I know they did this as a group, so all I can think in my head is that they form like this circle with all of them like holding an edge of the cake <laughs> and walking out hoping nobody sees them. What's amazing about this story is they made it out of the store with the sheet cake, right? They, they get out of there feeling like they've been completely unnoticed, and this feels like major bragging rights. We did it. We got out of the store with this huge object, with this sheet cake. I mean, this is definitely an accomplishment. They get home, they're ready to, you know, dig into the spoils of war, they get a knife out, they get ready to cut into the cake, and what they find out they have is a cardboard box with icing all over it. <laughs> Truth is, they knew that this was being shoplifted in the store, and they would have apprehended them, except everybody in the security office was too busy laughing their heads off about the kids that were carrying the iced cardboard out the door. <laughs> the cake was fake but the ride to the police office was real. <laughs> Embarrassment, that was real. You know what Satan wants to do with Jonathan Hoover? What Satan wants for Jonathan Hoover is he wants to trade me something fake for something real. I have something of value and he doesn't like that. So he wants to give me something that's fake. Can I show you a verse? This is, this is where we'll end. The Apostle Paul said this. This is one of the few times the Apostle Paul ever talks about being afraid of something. He's a pretty emotionally steely guy. It's one of the only times that he talks about being afraid of something. He starts off by talking about a race. He says, don't you realize that in a race everybody runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. They do it for a temporary high. But we've got a bigger thing on our minds. We're looking for an eternal prize, for something permanent. So I run with purpose in every step. He's like, I'm being really careful with my scam filter. I'm making sure that I'm not just letting stuff hit me as a lie and, and, and getting transfixed by that and thinking, oh, that's, that's believable. I can, I can take that on face value. And he said, so I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm not messing around. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear... This is what he's afraid of. As a minister of the gospel, I'm afraid that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You know what I think the Apostle Paul is saying? I think he's saying, I don't want to get to the end of my race. I don't want to get to the end of my life 
and sit down with my cake and cut into it and find out that it's made of cardboard because I don't need that in my life. You know what the Bible says about what we should believe? I, let's, let's flip this for just a second because I said that Satan wants to get us to believe a lie so that we'll do something that's not smart. What does God want us to believe? The Bible says if you want to please God, you need to believe two things. One is you need to believe that God is who he says he is. And number two, this is interesting, he says the other thing you need to believe is that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What does that verse mean? That verse means that when God gives you a cake, it's really a cake with layers and strawberries and cream and real frosting, not the cheap stuff, but the real homemade frosting, the good kind, right? See, that's the thing. None of us need fake cakes in our life. I, I, don't need, I don't need a cardboard cake in my life. I don't need the fake junk that Satan's trying to sell me, the stuff that's gonna look good up front but have a stinger in the tail. What I want is the real thing. I want a real future. I don't wanna be disqualified. I want what is genuine that God has for me in my life, in my ministry, in my family, in my future, and that's what I want for you too. So we gotta work on that scam filter. It's time to say nothing more that's fake for me. I'm going for the permanent stuff. I don't need that stuff that Satan sends in my life. I'm going for what's real. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for getting us started in this discussion of the illusions that Satan uses to mess with us. I pray that you would help us to be clear in our understanding of the lies that he throws our way and also clear on how to follow you to do what it is that you've called us to do, to strive for that permanent prize that you have for us. Thank you so much for your love. Dismiss us with your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next week.